Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks, the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to resume here in September of 2021 in our home city of New York for the first time, but that's to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. We're very excited today to bring you a conversation around land policy, but a lot more than that, issues like climate change, water conservation, uh, with the heads of the Lincoln Institute for Land Policy. That's Catherine Jo Lincoln and Dr. George McCarthy. Uh, Katie Lincoln currently serves as the board chair and chief investment officer for the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, which is an independent global foundation focused on addressing significant policy issues through innovative land use and taxation methods. Over the course of her 25-year tenure as the Institute's CIO, uh, Ms. Lincoln has led the endowment strategic asset allocation, policy development, investment selection process, and draw policies, all of which have contributed meaningfully to achieving the current $700 million asset base. Uh, Ms. Lincoln also serves as a member of several other boards, including Lincoln Electric Holdings, a publicly traded company. Uh, she's also a member of the board of directors of the Honor Health Network uh, and Claremont Lincoln University. Dr. George McCarthy, AKA Mac, uh, is president and CEO of the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Before joining the Lincoln Institute in 2014, Mac directed Metropolitan Opportunity at the Ford Foundation. Uh, Mac has also worked as a senior research associate at the Center for Urban and Regional Studies at the University of North Carolina, Go Heels, uh, professor of economics at Bard College, resident scholar at the Jerome Levy Economics Institute, a visiting scholar, a member of the high table at King's College uh, of Cambridge University, and visiting scholar at the University of Naples, and finally, research associate at the Center for Social Research in St. Petersburg, Russia. Obviously, with his deep international uh, experience, George is the perfect person, or Mac, as I should say, the perfect person to lead the Lincoln Institute for Land Policy and its global mission. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony's also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Well, we're thrilled to have you both on, John. Thank you. Uh, Katie and Mac, the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, celebrating its 75th anniversary this year. So let's let's start with Katie. Uh, tell somebody that doesn't know what the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy is. What is it, Katie? And why should we be super happy about its 75th year anniversary? Well, let me give you a little bit of history, Anthony, because I think that um, some framing of it is, is interesting. So 75 years ago, my grandfather, John C. Lincoln, decided that he wanted to have people understand a little bit more about land policy, specifically about tax policy and land tax policy and how that policy could really help underserved communities be better, if you will, right? So he was an inventor, he was a Renaissance person. As, as John said in my intro, I'm a member of the board of the Lincoln Electric Holdings Company, the world's largest welding company. Um, he started that company in um, 1895 with $200 of his own capital. This year we'll, we'll probably have three billion, close to $3 billion worth of sales. 
Um, so he had the chance to be an entrepreneur, a, a Renaissance person. And with some of that wealth, he started the Lincoln Foundation, which really examined things around land policy and land taxation policy around the work of a gentleman named Henry George, which I'm sure Mac will talk about when you get to questions around tax policy later on in our conversation. But, he, but my grandfather really wanted to think about those things. So he started the foundation. And then my grandfather, my father took up those reins later on in 1974 and started the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. He realized that there was really no place specifically in the 70s that was looking at land as a specific policy goal. And so he started the land pol the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. Because when you think about it, Anthony, land is, you know, pun intended, but sort of at the bottom of everything. I mean, when you think about it, it's important and it really matters. I mean, my my land policy matters to me a lot. Your land policy matters to you a lot. I You might not care if someone's going to put a nuclear power plant next to my house, but I certainly care. Um, and, and you would care if someone put a nuclear power plant next to you. The policymakers in your community really are the people who are making your life the way, the way it is, right? And so now the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy works globally to think about how land policy can be part of a suite of solutions around global macro policy issues. We're going to talk about these today, I hope, you know, climate change, fiscal health, all those sorts of things. But it has its deep roots in the visions of my grandfather, who really wanted people to have better lives. Really, really, he and my father, their, their mantras were the golden rule. He really wanted people to have better lives and better lives through thinking about how better land policy. So, Professor um, Mac, we're going to call you Professor Mac for the sake of this. Uh, I feel like if I call you Mac after uh, John Dorsey read your bio, it doesn't do you justice. So you're going to we're going to go with Professor Mac if you're OK with it. That's fine. Uh, a, a, couple, a couple of years ago, I read a book called The Noblest Triumph, and it was called Property and Prosperity Through the Ages. And basically the. The author was making the case in the book that private property uh, was the elixir for growth and the elixir for prosperity. Once people recognized that they could own a plot of land that they could call their own, they took care of it better, they built upon it, they, there was a blessing uh, to property. What is your thought and reaction to that, Professor Mack? Well, certainly lots I'll of people- I'll call you Mac after this next question. I just thought I would throw that out there. Yeah, so the thing about uh, property is that um, there's um, a lot of benefits that accrue to people for um, owning and controlling uh, property. And um, more often than not, those benefits are unearned. And that's kind of the, the thesis of uh, the work of Henry George that uh, Katie's grandfather decided needed to be uh, told more broadly. Now. Uh, the fact that uh, you know people have been able to leverage uh, ownership of property into other uh, you know economic growth, um, personal assets, um, you know the transformation of places and countries and and landscapes is is it's undeniable. Um, whether or not it <clears throat> could be done without um, you know the institution of uh, private property and the private ownership of land is probably arguable. I mean. The, the greatest economic growth of the last 20 years has been in China, where uh, there's no private ownership of land. And, uh, you know, the, that country has been able to actually surpass the United States in economic growth for the last 20 years. 
um, through a different kind of sets of policies and approaches to investment and um, and you know industrial and trade uh, policy. So I don't know the um, you know just to go back to the the issue of of how land gets its value because that's really kind of at the core of what the Lincoln Institute does. Um, Katie's grandfather was struck by the idea that, um, you know, Henry George said during the, uh, the, the industrial revolution, incredible amounts of wealth were created through the, um, through invention, through investment, through hard work of lots and lots of people. Um, and, uh, he was kind of struck by the fact that in spite of the fact that economic growth was running apace, uh, there was, uh, seemed to be this distressing, um, endurance of uh, poverty and in particular urban poverty that just didn't seem to go away. And he's trying to figure out why it was that poverty persisted in the face of all this opulence. And he concluded that the, um, uh, the benefits of economic growth are being distributed um, in, a, in a bad way. Um, and that distribution problem was that the people who are generating the wealth, um, capital and labor, were getting taxed to uh, fund the, the public sector and meanwhile, uh, landowners were getting all the benefits of economic growth uh, and doing nothing to earn them. Uh, and essentially, what he argued was the value of land is almost always created by um, actions that go beyond the actions of the landowner, whether it's public investment in infrastructure, whether it's the, uh, you know, the collision of people in cities that just raise the level of, uh, of value of land, having nothing to do with the people who are sitting on the land when they get there, having everything to do with all the, the public interest in owning land now that there's agglomerations of population. So what Henry George said was, if we tax away the unearned increment of uh, land value from uh, landowners, we could actually eradicate poverty and fund the entire uh, public sector. And uh, that was the, the thesis of the book that he wrote called Progress and Poverty, which was um, uh, at least in theory, or at least it's claimed to be the second most popular book in the world in the 19th century after the Bible. It was uh, translated to 30 or more languages and published all over the world. And um, Henry George was, uh, was you know, a barnstorming uh, you know, political economist running around uh, giving speeches. And he, he ended up in Cleveland one day and he met uh, John C. Lincoln and, <clears throat> and the rest is history. So, so Katie, I mean, and it's a brilliant exposition. Thank you, Mac. I, 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 Katie, if your grandfather was here today and he saw our society today and he looked at land policy today, uh, what do you think he would say? And what would he, what would you think he would want changed? Wow. That's a good question, Anthony. John, John I finally got a good question. You see that? Okay. <laughs> You're not the only person that asks good questions. I was hoping to save that one for myself. Let me repeat the question because it was so good. No, I'm kidding. Katie, tell me, tell me what he would say. Um, I I think that he would still think that there, there is there's inequity, there's unfairness in the way that people live and that way people are marginalized. Um you know, there's, there's still, my partner is a real estate professional. And so he, he tells me that there's still in some places in this country, there are still 
laws that say, or um, in, in HOAs that say you can't sell to certain types of people. And, you know, you, you hear about neighborhoods that have been decimated because certain types of people can't live there. I think my grandfather would be appalled by that. I think that he would think that, that you should, things should be open and that, and that everyone should have an equal opportunity to live someplace, to work someplace, to put an oar in the water and pull equally with the person next to them, just, you know, whether they were, whatever their skin tone, whatever their religious preference, right? So I think you would be appalled at the way that we have segregated our society and marginalized huge swaths of people, it, not only in this country, but globally. So, so Mac, and I think that's br brilliantly well stated and it's an obvious problem. And I think we would probably all agree and correct me if I'm wrong, the problem is getting worse. It seems like there's been more separation and more disequilibrium in, in wealth. So, so Mac, what would you do? Let's say you were the grand czar and you could figure out a way to create better land resource allocation uh, here in the United States and around the world. What would you do? Well, Anthony, I think the, one of the first things I would do is um, recognize that uh, it's really um, it's really dangerous in the long run for a society to to have um, land and uh, and and the things on it like housing, um, you know, essential stuff traded as commodities. And so, um, I would one of the things I would do is I would preserve um, a significant share of those uh, resources, those assets for um, for the for for the public for the public use, right? And so. I would um, I would pull a large share of our housing stock out of um, the, the tradable market, and so that it couldn't, so that you know, um, liquidity that's piling up in any number of places around the world couldn't bid shelter away from low-income people because they see it as a good investment opportunity. Um, similarly, land uh, shouldn't be uh, uh, traded as freely, and um, we would find ways to. Um, uh, keep a, a certain share of the land available for as infrastructure for the, the society to to run. Um, part of that, if you um, if you then impose kind of more and, and fairer and better enforced kind of land policies, you could also make sure that the right things get built in the right places, that the the right um, um, uh, you know the right use of the police powers of planning. Are actually, uh, you know, designing places that actually work for us better, uh, not just uh, designed to kind of uh, follow the market and let the market decide kind of what gets built where and why, right? Um, and I know that kind of runs counter to the idea of um, of uh, private property, but uh, I think that you know there's a there's a, a limit to how much uh, private property and a kind of um, market fundamentals uh, can be. Uh, can can be allowed to kind of drive human evolution and not just human evolution, the evolution of the whole planet. And, 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 you know, in some ways, uh, un, untrammeled, uh, you know, uh, freedom to kind of, uh, whatever trade and, and bargain in, uh, in necessities like land and, and housing and food, um, lead us into kind of a, a, a bad place. And that's one of the reasons why we have, some of these really unassailable challenges like the climate crisis to deal with because we haven't been willing to kind of, you know, exercise restraint on ourselves and prevent ourselves from doing really, really damaging things in the long term in, uh, in exchange for 
short-term benefits and profits, right? So I don't know. I you know, there's a I could probably write a, a thesis on it. So it, it's a, it's a pretty broad question, but I would say that that if we just find ways to kind of uh, impose um, a different sense of fairness into the way we make decisions about the use, uh, the taxation, and the um, and the the transfer of land, we could get um, a lot further than we're able to get if we just allow all those decisions to be made kind of in a in isolated markets. It, you know, and again, this is just I'm going to test this theory on you, Katie. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. Um, I find that, uh, and forgive me for saying this, we're going to leave John out of this, okay? I find it's our generation, the baby boomer generation, that for whatever reason has been neglectful from a policy point of view related to the climate. If I'm wrong about that, you guys correct me. Um, but I do feel like we're having a frat party with the environment, and then we want our kids and our grandkids to live in the frat house on Sunday morning with the bong water on the floor and the broken windows and so forth. And I'm wondering, is it possible to shake our generation, which let's face it, is still more or less in power politically, and if not politically, also commercially around the world to shake our generation to do more? Katie, am I wrong about that? And if I'm not, what can we do to shake these people to do more? You know, I think that you're, you are right. I think that we're slowly, us old people are slowly um, seeing the light. I, I think it's, um, I think we're slowly seeing the light. And I think it's people John's age, thank you, John, and my children's age who are, you know, shake, taking us by the collar and shaking us and saying, hey, you know, this is, why are you drinking out of that plastic bottle? Why aren't you using the recyclable one that I gave you for Christmas? I mean, just little things, right? Everything, every little step helps. So, um, but I think what it's going to take, Anthony, I mean, I, I think it's going to take leadership from the top, right? I think that it's going to take, um, science doesn't lie. Right. And I think that people need to have to there. There needs to be leadership to say science doesn't lie. And you have to beat our heads up with it. But science doesn't lie. And there have we to got be a good, I'm not to interrupt, but we have a good 40 percent of the population that does no longer accept science. So we have two battles going on. Right. We have the science anti-science community now, uh, in addition to the climate change issue. Right. I mean. I don't know. Right. I mean, it's not just not just the climate; it's with vaccinations or public health right. and safety. Right, but I think what we need is more leaders who are willing to stand up and say science isn't lying and help people educate. You know, we need to we need to continue right. to educate. Lincoln Institute is is by and large, well, a, a, an educational organization. Right. I mean, we really strive to provide good education around issues of land policy, right? I mean, around climate change, around municipal fiscal health, around land policy, taxation. But we really work at helping to educate policymakers so that they can make better policies. And then in that way, we are hopefully moving the needle on some of these issues that you referenced it. So I wanna, I wanna bend that needle. I don't just wanna move it. I wanna like totally bend it, you know, like, uh, like they did in those old silent movies. What do we do, Mac? How do we how do we really force a major sea change 
because we know we, we know even the climate deniers, I say to them, well, what about the air? You know, if you're in Beijing, New York, and you've got smog concentration, the asthma rates for these kids is going through the roof. So, I mean, maybe you don't believe that the climate's changing, but the pollution is affecting your children. What do we do, Mac? What's what, Is there a bazooka that we could pull out, a policy bazooka? Well, I think that the bazookas that are, that are being pulled out are the, um, the climate bazookas that we've been experiencing just over the last uh, few years. I mean, the, uh, you know, the, the, the shutdown of the entire power grid in Texas is just an example of um, uh, one of those you know, events that happens, supposed to happen every 100 years or so, and it happened twice in the last 30, right? Um, the, uh, the flooding of, of, uh, of Houston, I don't know how many times over the last three or four years, uh, from these in, super intense tropical storms, wildfires in, uh, you know, all through California and the, in the U.S. West, wildfires in, in Australia that, that, that decimated that, that continent. I mean, the, um, uh, we're seeing it over and over again. And, and you know, there's, there's some things that you just can't deny, like the, um, you know, uh, a clear day flooding on the streets of Miami because now sea level rise is actually starting to kind of show up because the, the the water level is rising underneath the city, right? And it, and so um, pretty soon, you're just not going to be able to deny it. And by then, um, luckily for us, the innovation that's been taking place um, all around the, the globe in terms of finding new ways to substitute out kind of, you know, carbon intense uh, energy generation or carbon intense uh, transportation it's already there. I mean, we know what we need to do and we know how to do it. It's just a matter of really committing the political will to do it. And I think that um, more and more, you know, especially as people of our generation die off, the others are just committing themselves to really making, you know, the right kinds of things happen. So I'm actually pretty optimistic. I think that um, carbon neutrality is something that people are actually talking about now. And we weren't talking about carbon neutrality even five years ago. Finding ways to uh, make entire kind of corporations carbon neutral, whole states are trying to commit to carbon neutrality. Countries, right? Um, and finding ways to really, really aggressively substitute out all sorts of um, different, um, you know, carbon uh, producing measures for carbon reducing measures. And now even finding new technologies to to trap carbon uh, in soil and in the in, in the in the ocean. And in uh, anyway, I think that uh, that. Once we're actually on that path, and once we actually even create the market to kind of drive it, we we'll get much more active carbon trading markets, other kinds of markets that are that are, are just waiting to kind of get unleashed. I think that we're going to find that the incentives are going to align, and things are going to happen really, really fast. Because you got to remember, right? The, the automobile has only been around for you know just over a hundred years, right? And really not commonly in use for about you know maybe seventy-five or eighty years. Um, so, you know, uh, things happen very quickly and, and you know, we look at, at, at things in terms of quarters or years or even lifetimes. Um, everything can change in a, in a matter of, you know, a, a one generation and it will be stunning and I probably won't be around to see it, but I think we're going to see an entirely different world uh, in, in the next generation. Mac, I, I have a, a follow-up question about, about climate. So I know that the Institute focuses on six goals, and it's a global mandate uh, that you guys have over there, uh, the first being regarding climate-related issues. In what geographies that you guys work is this climate crisis most urgent? You know, there's a place like Jakarta uh, that's 
close to being underwater if we get further sea level rise. They are engaged in a 30 plus billion dollar effort to move their capital to Borneo. Uh, there's other cities around the world that that potentially potentially are in the crosshairs if we get you know greater warming and and sea level rise. What areas do you guys work are most uh, you know most in danger, and what can be done in those areas to to help them withstand the impacts of a warmer climate? And is is how much is climate migration part of that? Well, that's, there's a, about three or four questions there. So let me see if I can kind of. Unpack. I got to get I got to get my licks in while I can, Max. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, well, number one, I mean, the thing is that almost every geography we work in is affected by the climate crisis in one form or another. And the the problem is that it's it's not just one thing; it's everything. It's whether it's wildfires in in Australia or California, or whether it's sea level rise in Bangladesh and in Indonesia, or you know, the entire Pacific Rim. All the coastal cities are in trouble, right? The um, uh, the, the entire Gulf Coast, right, is is in trouble uh, from sea level rise. Miami, I don't know how Miami survives this because there there's no way that you can actually protect the city because the water comes in underneath, right? It, it, so it's going to be really hard to kind of seal it off from a water that's going to be rising from below, right? So um, it just depends on what you you know on what you think is the the real crisis. I mean, the right now in terms of climate migration. The 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 you know the what's what's it called the IFCCC the um, the the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that the the IPCC um, they they they're estimating that we're going to have 150 million climate migrants uh, by 2050, right? People who are going to have to move uh, voluntarily or involuntarily as a result of uh, climate change. And right now there's not that many of them, but right now it's really uh, the disadvantaged folks. That are going to be that are getting pushed out, and uh, a lot of indigenous folks in the United States, uh, in places as far flung as Alaska, along the Bering or the Chukchi Sea, or down in uh, Louisiana in the Gulf Coast, they're already getting displaced by rising sea levels, and they don't have any place to go. And they're now testing all of our kind of jurisprudence and other kinds of um, uh, uh, legal frameworks to figure out how we're going to adequately kind of uh, accommodate them when they have to go someplace else. And um, uh, and that's just going to be that's the tip of the iceberg because we're going to see tens of millions of people having to move um, from places. Even look at the the southern end of uh, of New York and what happened to Manhattan uh, all the way up. I was on Forty Second Street uh, with Superstorm uh, Sandy, and we were displaced at the Ford Foundation for a couple of weeks while they're actually just trying to restore power because of the flooding and the and the subways are out. For weeks, right? Um, yep. Some of them, you know, indelibly harmed. And that my, was my office. Thing. My office at the time was in Lower Manhattan, and we, you know, it, it destroyed all the uh, the technology infrastructure in the building, and and forced us out of the office for multiple months. Also, knew plenty of people you know, whose houses were destroyed or or severely damaged in that storm. So that was definitely right. a reminder that you know people forget. A decade goes by, you know, from the most recent storm, people forget, but. It sort of, and this is not to pick on Miami, but I see this massive migration of, you know, people in the financial industry, people in the technology industry moving down to Miami, uh, knowing that, you know, the entirety of that city is only five feet above sea level right now, facing the issues that you mentioned. So it'll be fascinating to see whether all those great tech minds can solve those issues. John, I think it's also important to note that it's not just sea level rise when you're talking about the 150 million Right. My, migrants. It's when you think about, and we're already seeing this now when climate change is the, the heat index. So if they're making many of these lands um, un, unmanageable, 
you can't farm on them anymore, right? Or um, the rain patterns are changing because of climate change. And so it's not just the sea level rise that's impacting populations. And again, as Max said, it's often the, the poor people or the underserved communities that are affected the most. And that is what, that's gonna be the global crisis. So how, how do we solve those issues? And I'll turn it back over to Anthony after this question, but those issues related to poverty and spatial or geographic inequality, as you mentioned, you know, something like Hurricane Katrina, there was a great Atlantic podcast series about the way that New Orleans permanently changed, uh, you know, following Hurricane Katrina. Obviously, we know the, the devastation in terms of loss of human life and property that took place from that storm. Uh, but how do we fix this issue, you know, related to affordable housing, related to poverty, and just the growing inequality uh, that's being exacerbated by climate-related issues and even public policy issues on, around land ownership and, and the provision of, of housing? Well, um, just to start with, I mean, the, the only way that you actually kind of defend the interests of whatever we want to call the underserved, the, the lower income uh, groups, the, uh, the, those that have been you know, experiencing um, uh, racial discrimination for, for decades, is through um, really active public policy because the only people out there that are going to be defending the interests of the poor are the people with some other kind of power, political power. And so we're just going to have to be willing to stand in the face of economic power because the people who are able to are going to be, uh, you know, um, migrating to the high ground and they'd be able to afford to buy the high ground and buy it out from underneath the um, folks that are uh, living there now. And so, you know, I hate to keep using Miami as an example, but if you go to Overton in Miami, which was the historic uh, African-American community, it's actually on high ground, right? And it was mostly ignored unless you wanted to build a superhighway through it, right? Um, uh, for decades and, and kind of left alone. And all of a sudden they're facing all sorts of pressure from uh, higher income people who want to get away from uh, the, the direct exposure to the coastline, right? And that's going to be happening everywhere. And, and unless we get um, a little bit kind of, uh, you know, creative and, um, and um, you know, far-sighted, we're going to have to, um, we're going to, have to deal with it when it's really hard to deal with as opposed to when it's easy to deal with. And so, like, for, uh, for one, of our, um, one of our projects we're working on is actually looking at where are the most vulnerable communities, uh, it, you know, to climate in the, in the U.S. and what are the options for them? And we're working with a group called the Climate Migration Network, and we're working with um, some um, uh, uh, some folks down at Emory University uh, and other scholars around North Carolina, and figuring out: Do we have public lands that we can reserve for communities that are going to have to be um, moved? And how are we going to, uh, you know, figure out how to transition them from where they are to where they can go? And one of the great things, at least about the U.S., is that. We've got a lot of publicly owned land in this country that could be uh, developed for people to uh, move to. State trust lands, uh, national uh, trust lands. BLM is the largest landowner in the world. It, it owns you know, uh, gigantic amounts of land across the West and, uh, and even some uh, on the, in the East. But the idea would be um, finding a way to actually plan ahead, you know, proper prior planning prevents poor performance, right? If we, if we figure it out now and we do it before we're all kind of running around trying to figure out where we're going to, where we're going to land, we'll be able to do it kind of in an orderly fashion. But as right. soon as you even uh, you mention the words managed retreat, politicians head the other way because they think 
managed retreat sounds like you've given up and you're, 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 you've lost the waving war. the white flag. Yeah. But you don't want to be plugging holes in the boat. Uh, you know, <laughs> when the boat's sinking, you want to, you want right. to do it before, before you start taking on water. Yeah. Uh, that's, I guess that's an appropriate metaphor in this case, Anthony, go ahead. Well, I want, I want you to continue, John, but I have, I have one last question before I let John, uh, read off some of the questions from our audience and stuff. What do you, what do you say to the full-on capitalists in our society that uh, you want to own their land, they want to have low property taxes on their land, they move to low-tax states uh, in order to do that? By the way, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool New Yorker. You know, Spike Lee asked me, he's doing a documentary on 9-11, am I going to be one of those rich hedge fund guys that moves down to Miami? I'm like, I'll be shutting the lights off in this great city with you, Spike, meaning I'm here for the duration. Um, But what do you say to those people that don't understand what I think you guys are explaining, which I certainly don't want for myself? I don't want to live in a Bob Wired McMansion, in in a McMansion, in a Bob Wired security compound gated community while my fellow neighbors are suffering. And yet we've got a very large group of people that think like that. I'm sorry to say it that way, and I hate to be cynical, but what do you say to those people? Do we need to move those people? Is that not necessary to move those people? What do you guys recommend that we do? Well, all right, I'll start, and Katie, you can you can jump in. So, okay. Anthony, the, I, I think the, 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 the soundest argument, and there's, there's a growing body of research to support this, is that inequality actually creates its own deadweight loss of economic growth. No question about it. And, and, and lots of people- and Lack of diversity does the same thing, Matt. Exactly. No, and anybody no understand a diverse portfolio and how a diverse portfolio is, is a, you know, a much better kind of option in the long run, right? Um, we'll also understand that, that um, the, the countries in the world that have succeeded the most and had the, the most rapid economic growth are the ones with growing middle classes. They, a growing middle class, uh, the, the, uh, whether it's a, an illusion or a promise of opportunity, of, uh, of upward mobility, those are the things that actually draw from people the kind of the energy and the, the inventiveness and the, the hard work that actually builds economies, right? Well, and I, so, I, I, not to interrupt you, but I'm a direct beneficiary of that. You know, my dad was a middle class worker, blue collar laborer, non-college educated uh, had a high wage. We went to a very good public school system. You know, I'm just going to emphasize this point. So I've made my money here in New York and I'm a product of New York. I'm a product of its public school system. I'm a product of that middle-class ecosystem. And so now that I'm paying high taxes because I'm doing reasonably well to pay back into the system, I'm totally fine with it. A lot of my buddies though are not. They want to move to low tax places and you know, they made their fortune here, but now they're going to take it elsewhere. I'm sorry to ventilate, but you guys are cheaper than my therapist. And there's two of you. <laughs> you see what I mean? I probably need a basketball team of therapists, but you guys are cheaper. But what do you say to those people? How do we ring their, their bell? I think one other way you ring their bell is to try and, I mean, I get back to education and leadership. You know, I think role modeling is so important. I mean, I, I think... I try and model behavior and I try to model language. When my kids were little, you know, they're 29 and 26 now, so they're still kids. They'll always be kids, we know that, but they're no longer young young kids. 
you know, I, I always said to them, language is important and, and who, and who you, the things you say and who you are is important and who your friends are is important. And, and where, and the kinds of things you like to do is important. And the things you say are important and diversity is important. And we always, I always made sure that they understood how, what a lucky life they had, but that we, I always made sure that they saw what a lucky life they had, that they, that they participated in um, volunteering, that we participated and not just gratuitously, Anthony, it wasn't something that we did, you know, check the box once a year, we did this, right. It was something that we engaged in as a family, as part of our community. Right. I think it's, I think that you have to shape people and say, you have to give grace because that's important. I think that's important. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know, Anthony, what you, what you can say to folks who, who want to live on their own kind of island of, of luxury and kind of in their own kind of uh, bubbles. I mean, maybe you can see that they can just do that and, um, and then really just focus on kind of making sure that the, the, the rest of the world works for the rest of the people, because that's a pretty tiny share of the population that's running away and moving to gated communities and trying to sit on their wealth and, and uh, do what? I don't, I don't know. What, 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 is the, what, what is the benefit that comes to them of, of, of living a life in a bubble? I'm not quite sure, right? And so the, you know, the pursuit of meaning ends up, I think, being the thing that drives all, all of us in the end. Right. And, and understanding what, what, what brings meaning to life, I think, is, is going to be uh, the key. And I, I think that it's just incumbent on us, and, and certainly in the way we do our own kind of promote our, the right kinds of land policies that, that we want to make sure that that things work for the vast majority of people. And if others decide they want to check out and take their chips and leave the table, I guess we got to let them do it. I mean, you know, what's what, what's really no, the I, I hear part, you. Right? you know, I, I think it makes sense. You know, I you know what what brings meaning to John Darcy's life, Mac, is that he asks better questions than me <laughs> during these salt talks. Okay, so I'm going to let John now. Uh, take over because I know he's got a flurry of questions and it would be important for him to outshine me. It gives him great meaning, Katie. Go ahead, John. He has a fair point. But um, so so to dig further into the tax policy question, so Anthony's referring to friends of his uh, that are moving to places like Florida and Texas, for example, being the biggest two examples of New Yorkers in the financial industry fleeing to, to lower tax jurisdictions. But that's only one element of taxes is income taxes. You know, there's no state income taxes in in Texas or Florida, uh, but there are in many cases higher property taxes. So, as you guys look at tax policies and public policies in general, how do you think about best practices as it relates to land use regulations, property tax frameworks, and land value return mechanisms uh, that just create you know a better better mechanisms for the supply of service land and just general land provision. So, you know, in terms of efficiency and, you know, economic fairness, um, and one of the reasons we exist, and we still uh, believe this, is that the, um, the best tax is the land tax. And it's the best tax for a, a, a number of reasons, but the, one of the main reasons is it, it's, a, it's a tax you can't move away from, right? Because you can't pick up your land and take it to Florida, right? Right. And, you can't, you um, can't run your land through a, a shell company in the, in the Seychelles or something. Right, and and the but the, and the thing about land is, is that um, 
the, or the land tax is that, that it doesn't actually distort um, other kinds of economic markets and incentives as well, having a land tax, right? And so, um, so we think the, the, the most preferable tax among all different suites of tax is the land tax, and it should be the, the basic tax to fund, uh, especially local governments, because um, that is going to be um, the, the source of, um, of value and the, the actions of the local government will have a direct bearing on the value of land, right? Because how you choose to invest in your own kind of uh, jurisdiction will have a great bearing on what the, what the, the tax base is, right? If you, if you build better sidewalks and you build better roads and you have better sewer systems and you can pipe in good, clean, fresh water into the houses, yeah, your your tax base goes up, and and their your revenues will go up. It's a, one of those, you know, um, you, uh, whatever self. You create aligned incentives. Yeah, right. uh, that's and a so, um, circle. Yeah, and then and then after that, then you know, the property tax is um, a good second best tax. Uh, the problem with the property tax is that uh, if you tax equally um, the land and the improvements, you do send the wrong kind of signal. In terms of making the right kinds of investments in the improvements on land, and you get, and so you you might end up having people not using land to its highest and best use. Um, but uh, the property tax is certainly better than you know a sales tax or an income tax as a as a general revenue source uh, because um, it has its um, it has stability over time. And once again, the actions of the government and how it invests and how it builds its infrastructure, what it does will have a direct bearing on growing its own tax base, which is a good thing, right? So uh, that's what we like, kind of land-based taxes. Uh, we're really big fans of what we call the split rate tax, but you don't see it very often anymore where you actually tax the land at a higher rate than you tax the improvements. Um, and that has the, the right kinds of um, benefits because it incentivizes people to um, make the right kinds of improvements and maintain the quality of the improvements on land. Um, and gets them to be more likely to bring land to its highest and, and best use. So, you know, um, we think that a, a diverse set of revenue sources is actually a good thing, but we think that we should rely mostly on the ones that, that distort the market the least. And, you know, income tax distorts labor markets, um, uh, you know, sales tax distorts commodity markets, it distorts all sorts of other kinds of markets. Every other kinds of tax you can me measure the dead weight loss that happens as a result of the imposition of the taxes. But the reason that land has no kind of dead weight loss is because it's in fixed supply. So um, you, the, um, a tax doesn't affect the supply of it, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you see, you know, a lot of the wealthiest people in the country and, and in the world, frankly, Bill Gates being one example of somebody who has, has hoarded tremendous amounts of land because of that scarcity factor um, and, and the fact that it's not you know, taxed onerously in a way that maybe it should be. Uh, but you, you talked a little bit about water. We've talked a lot about land, but water is a pressing issue, especially in certain parts of the world and certain parts of the country. I think over the last decade, we've seen several instances of, of significant droughts in places like California, South Africa facing a water crisis. How big of a crisis is you know, general water shortage and what can be done to solve those issues? Katie, you should start on this one because this is near and dear to your heart. And she lives in Phoenix where <laughs> yeah. water is something they think about a lot, right? They well, use all yeah. the water on the golf courses there in, in yeah. Scottsdale. Well, we use, we use gray water. Thank you. We, we yeah. do think about that. We use gray water. And 
don't know if any of the um, any of you two on the on the bottom of my screen, John or Anthony, are golfers, but a lot of I am. So I was saying that uh, with a great deal of affection. <laughs> most of the water on golf courses here is gray water. So, um, but you know, we created the Baba Center for on Land and Water Policy about five years ago to look at the nexus. I think it's important to remember that we are Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, but we really wanted to look at that nexus between land policy and water policy, John, because to your point water policy is really important, right? And it's something that, that a lot of people are looking at water policy, we're looking at land policy, but we really weren't looking at the connection between those two. And you think about how important water policy is to the use of land and how important land policy is to the use of water. And that's why we, we set up this, this, this center here in Phoenix, actually, where I'm sitting as we speak. Um, and it's focusing on the Colorado watershed, Colorado River watershed. And about four days ago, actually, something great happened again. First time it's happened again since about three years ago. Water actually got to the Sea of Cortez again through the Colorado River. Um, there's a nonprofit here who's been buying water. And it's been actually able to get past Yuma again and get through the two states and into the Sea of Cortez, um, which is really quite a remarkable thing when so many of those um, farmlands down in Mexico have not seen water for decades because it's been stopped at the Yuma border. Um, water is an issue and um, it's a big issue in the West, especially, in, well, it's, we're in a huge drought, whether people think it's over. Last year, people thought, oh, the drought's over. We had a good snowpack. This year, I understand the Sierra Nevadas are at 5% of their normal snowpack, 5% of their normal snowpack, which means that that's a bad thing. Um, I was in Colorado over the weekend. The Rockies are still have a lot of snow, and they had five inches of snow five days ago, so that's a good thing. But um, water is a huge issue, and, and it gets around um, the use of it, whether you know, 80% of the water that's used in our region is for agriculture. Um, and and when you think about it, agriculture is a really flexible use of water because you can let a land lie fallow and then that water can be used for um, commercial, other commercial uses. If you start building houses, you can't really let those houses lie fallow. Those people need to you know, bathe and drink and, and live. So there's always that stressful creativity, if you will, between the ag land use and the commercial and residential use. The other issue, at least in Arizona and often in the West, is that much of the water is owned by the Native American communities. So the rights to that water um, are often um, structured so that the Native Americans own it. And then when then you have to figure out how to buy it, how to rent it, how to lease it. So it's water is a huge issue in the West. Generally, not enough, except occasionally we have too much, you know, on the days that we have a monsoon. But generally, we don't have enough. Right. But the, the bottom line on, on water is, though, that uh, it's a market failure because we don't really have an active market for water. And market water isn't priced correctly, so without it being priced correctly, it's not rationed right. Right. And so um, the way we apportion water through these, uh, you know, really uh, arcane water rights that have existed about as long as property rights, and, and oddly enough, you can sever the water rights from land and sell it away, right? Um that is a that that's a, a going concern, and so until we we'll never have the right incentives until we actually get the, the prices right, and we'll never get the prices right until we actually can freely trade water as opposed to control it in these uh, you know Byzantine ways that we do with um uh, you know with with uh, water rights, particularly in the West. The U.S. West 
people, um, they say whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting over, right? And uh, and that's what they do. They'll they'll you know there's been bloodshed over uh, water rights uh, across the West, but globally, this is a gigantic existential problem. And and the real answer is you know is conservation and really making the right kinds of choices because. Uh, you know, water is a cycle. It goes, you know, it goes into the atmosphere. It comes down as rain or snow. It goes into the ground. We pump it out. It, it, and it and it's it, there's the same amount of water on the planet that there was, you know, 100 million years ago. Right. Uh, and we just have to figure out how to kind of manage it better. And part of that is just really being able to think through things like, you know, um, you know, landscape choices or crop choices or how we choose to irrigate or what we choose to irrigate or what we choose to grow where. And those things, we haven't really given it the right thought because the incentives have been wrong all along. Right. As much as I hate to concede it, one of the things that you have to give to the Arizonans is they have made more advancements in, in, in water economy than any place in the United States. And they, they actually are one of the most efficient users of water um, in the world, right? Right. So um, well, you find in places, I mean, we do some business in places like the Middle East, uh, when you have to be very cognizant of the way you, ways in which you use water and the ways in which you farm, uh, it drives innovation in those places. I think Arizona is probably an example of that. Right. And Israel, boy, Israel is yeah, Israel. number yeah. one, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Last question I have for you, Katie, is you, you manage the a sizable endowment there at the Lincoln Institute that allows you guys to engage in all these terrific projects, you know, that, that are helping to protect uh, the planet and help to drive great public policy policy decisions uh, around the world. In terms of how you guys manage your asset allocation as part of that endowment, how do you think about portfolio construction in a way that, that provides that uh, growth and, and sustainable uh, type of returns that you're looking for so you can sustain the efforts of the, of the Institute? Um. Well, we talked about, Mac mentioned it a little earlier about diversity. Um, you know, we really have a diversified portfolio, but I'm really, um, I'm a huge um, equity girl. I just think that, that you know, equities in a long haul are going to serve us well. We've done, we've done reasonably well with our equity portfolio. Um, I'm also a huge um, fan of private equity and because I think, you know, all companies started small and they all got big at one point or another. We um, I, I really got us out of substantially out of the debt markets, you know, as much as we have really wonderful um, debt managers, you know, getting me, you know, beating their benchmarks. They're doing three percent wasn't getting me to my eight and a half percent bogey. So we really moved all of that into um, unconstrained credit. We really love this manager called Skybridge. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. They've, they've done really well for us. Over, we've been with them for we, quite. We can let this salt talk turn into a marathon, just so everybody right. knows. <laughs> we've been like the old Jerry quite, Lewis marathons for quite some time, and we're really pleased with the work that they do for us. But um, all things aside, we have been really pleased with our hedge book and and, and the work that Skybridge has done for us. So. Um, I have a tendency to, um, we look at our asset allocation, you know, every three to five years, John, and we, we're not a tactical player. Um, I have my sort of my mins, my max, and I can lean one way or another, but we really look at managing to a strong financial return versus benchmarks. I will say that I do try and find mission related investments where I can. I have a, a private equity manager who um, creates 
mitigation banks, which is right up our alley in terms of working towards good land policy. They've done really well for us. But again, excuse me, we always look for a strong financial return first because we all we, we believe, <coughs> excuse me, we believe that the, the mission is first and that's sort of Mac's job, if you will, that it's really important to make sure that we have the funds to support the work and that so to maximize the, the funding is what I, that's my job. Well, you guys are a mission-based organization, so the great work you do managing that portfolio gives Mac the uh, the arrows he needs to to do his job. So, and we just want to—I know Anthony will uh, reiterate this as well—but you guys definitely take the right long-term patient approach um, when it comes to investing that allows you to to achieve those targets. So, so we're very grateful for your support and and uh, very you know in admiration of your long-term thinking when it comes to portfolio management. But but well, thank you guys I, so I, much for joining know, us. Thank you guys so much for joining I us today. Can't really say much more than what John <laughs> just said. So, but in all seriousness, um, um, I want more and more people to know about the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, and hopefully we can have you at our live event in New York, uh, which is coming up in September at the Javits Center. And I just think it's important that we push these ideas because, you know, what's the end game? The end game is we want to better each other. Uh, and we know, uh, smart economists know it's not a zero-sum game. We can improve each other through the process of helping each other. And you guys are doing an amazing job of that. So thank you. And congratulations on 75 years. Yo, thank you. Now, now John Darcy thinks I'm 80 years old, but that's a whole other topic. We won't. Yeah, Anthony we'll remembers when he was in high school when you guys were founded. That was a, a great, great moment. <laughs> it's brutal, Katie. It's brutal over here. Yeah. If you can help me out, you may have to helicopter me out of here at some point. But thank you again. Well, and thank Thanks. you for thank you for inviting us. It's been a fun morning. We appreciate it. Likewise, and uh, we'll. we'll Get on one of those golf courses, Katie, uh, where they use that gray water to, to irrigate. I'd love, love to tee it up with you. Well, okay, I have a son and a partner who will certainly love to host you. So All right, you're there you go. let us know. There you go. Yeah, Sounds okay. good. You guys All right, take, take care, care, guys. Yeah. Uh-huh. Have a great Bye. day. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's SALT Talk with Katie Lincoln and Dr. George McCarthy of the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this episode or any of our previous episodes of SALT Talks, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference is our handle. We're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks, especially when we're talking about what we think are really important issues around sustainability. Uh, we love educating people on these topics. So please spread the word. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.